All right, let's be clear. If you want leaders, you need to cultivate leaders. At Gooder, we use Brene Brown's bestseller, Dare to Lead, to teach leadership, vulnerability, values, and a bunch of other impactful stuff. Before Dare to Lead, we were okay at leading. We didn't know our values or behaviors. We talked about empathy, vulnerability, but didn't understand them. We avoided tough conversations or approached them all wrong. Now we dare to lead every day. We know our values, who we are, how to act. Empathy and vulnerability are ingrained in our culture, and everyone here has the tools to have tough conversations, and they do. For the future, our blue sky is to cultivate a brand where every day we can have the hardest conversations with no fighting, judgment, or trying to be right. Leading is a practice. Let's talk about ours. This is Culture Gooder with Sean Tinney and Stephen Lease coming to you from Bend, Oregon. Yeah, Bend. Apparently it's really idyllic. And Los Angeles, California. So we're huge fans of Brene Brown at Gooder, and Dare to Lead has been an important part of shaping our culture. In fact, everybody goes through a Dare to Lead book club together. I've led like six of them. I know you've led a few. How did this come to be? I've been a Brene Brown fan for a long time. And before Dare to Lead came out, Gifts of Imperfection was something we kind of used in our culture and talked about. We did a book club with. And then in 2018, I was at the Inc. Magazine conference and Brene Brown was the keynote speaker and Dare to Lead had just come out. So her talk was about Dare to Lead. And what struck me about it, and as I sit there with just like open eyes staring up at her, was that this book, as she talked about it there, all of her other books, everybody loves and they're really impactful but they realized they weren't giving tactical ways to implement all these different things. And so this was an insane amount of research done and a tactical way to implement leadership into your life and into your company. And at Gooder, we're really big into action plans and deliverables and implementing. And so hearing this and hearing her talk about it, it was glorious. It was a godsend of, oh my God, we can use this now. So I bought it immediately, read it. Then we did a first book club with the leaders of the company and did an offsite. And then you, myself, and Nicole did a book club with the three of us and really went in depth. We went on Brene Brown's website, followed the chapters, took it really seriously and found it really impactful and then started putting everybody through, is it a nine or eight week? Uh, I've got it down to seven at this point. (laughs) Yeah, it's a seven week book club. And so, yeah, that's the journey. And I've really just started with previous Brene Brown books, but that conference was where it really showed up that we have to do this. Right on. So it just occurred to me, I have this preamble that I do before all of the book clubs. And it's basically vulnerability is a huge part of the book and being willing to share with people. And we have book clubs, you know, four to five people are in a book club together. And the exercises in the workbook have you going through some really kind of deep emotional stuff and sharing that with each other. Of course, you have the option to pass if it doesn't feel right for you in that moment. But one of the first things I ask of the group is that we agree that everything that's shared in the meeting is confidential. So That creates its own little safe space to work through the book together. And then another thing that's come up over time is encouraging people to dissent, right? We're basically forcing everyone to go through this book club, but it doesn't mean that they have to agree with every single thing that's in the book. So the conversations have become some of the most valuable parts of this whole thing. The material is amazing, but the conversations it sparks, especially when people are allowed to say, you know, this didn't really sit well with me or like, I don't understand how she's talking about millennials here or whatever, you know? So it's been cool to set that expectation of confidentiality and then remind people that just whatever their authentic take is fully accepted. It's not just, you know, find things you agree with and let's all nod along together. For sure. 
huge Brene Brown fan. And there are things that I really don't align with her on. And that's okay. You know, there's no one in the world I 100% sync up with. Yeah, exactly. We're kind of just going to go through this book more or less chapter by chapter and pick out some of the key concepts. One of them from chapter one is permission slips and container building. So giving yourself permission at the beginning of the meeting to say, hey, you know, this was really tough for me to go through. I might cry when I'm sharing something or I'm going to leave this off the table or give myself permission to to pause and circle back on something. So that kind of goes along with just the, the way that we begin the club itself. The book starts out with beginning a meeting, especially an important meeting or a tough conversation by setting out some ground rules for that conversation. For sure. What were some of the big takeaways for you in chapter one? Yeah, I mean, the idea of permission slips is wonderful. And it's something that in life, I think we could all use more of. I so many times jump into a meeting or a situation or a project with no really rules of engagement. And that's really, really awkward. We've used a thing for a while for every project called Rules We Play By. And permission is a basically, a, in my opinion, a different version of that. And I think whenever I'm engaging with really hard conversations, I will always legit lay out the framework of the intentions, what we're here for, and the permission of it. And to your point earlier, you can feel the air gets let out of the room a little bit when you do something like that. I think it's really beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot easier to get to a productive place in a conversation if you're able to be really clear about all those things up front. Yeah. I mean, could you tell about like container building as a concept? Because it's something that I'm not sure if people know when we talk about that, what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So just what I explained at the beginning of setting the book club up as its own little container, right? This is a safe space. You're allowed to dissent. We're bound by confidentiality. Work with your resistance, whatever you feel like, oh, I can't accept that. You know, that's there for some reason. So please lean into that kind of a thing is exactly the way that we would want to set the stage for any you know, book club like this, a tough conversation that we need to have, anything like that. It's really just laying the ground rules and kind of setting some boundaries around that conversation. Yeah, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but leadership is infectious and and you have to lead by example. And I'll find myself more and more when things make me uncomfortable, just owning that in front, like, hey, I don't know how to do this either. And when you kind of create that container and that permission, it really helps everybody to help each other instead of above then. It's like we're in this together. Right. Yeah, exactly. And one of the big takeaways I have from the first chapter is that leadership is taking responsibility for finding and developing the potential in others and that courage is a teachable skill and a contagious behavior. So it's not just something that people possess innately. It's something that we can cultivate in everyone. And I know that's a huge part of the reason that you have found this book so valuable and brought it to the entire company. For sure. You know, there's a part in the first the introduction that's like learning about leading is way easier than leading. <laughs> yeah, And that's one of my favorite things. And look, because it's real because sure, reading this book's not enough. It's reading it, implementing it, fucking it up and doing it over <laughs> and over again. And that's really, really important. I mean, my favorite thing from the first part too is just the, the whole man in the arena quote. Oh yeah. Can you share that with us? Yeah, one of my favorite things about this introduction of the whole book is the Man of the Arena quote by Teddy Roosevelt. So I'll read it, and I apologize for fumbling through it because I don't have a smooth, silky read voice like Sean. Hey, don't talk to my friend like that. (laughs) It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doers of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who actually is in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of a high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place 
shall never be with those timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. Mm, yeah. So that leads right into chapter two, where a key line that stood out to me is if you're not in the arena getting your ass kicked on occasion, I'm not interested in your opinion or open to your feedback. I reference this all the time yeah, because it's very real, especially when you start a company. It's amazing how people want to give you their opinions. Uh-huh. And, I, and sometimes I find it laughable. And yeah, this quote shows up for me all the time. And it's really part of our culture. We have this thing at Good where we say, should's a banned word. We should do this. Because if you're saying should, you are not in the arena um, getting your hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just the cheap seats, right? All the people who are watching you do something but not doing it themselves. It's so easy to let their opinions matter. But this gives you permission to just forget about all that. Yeah. Tune out the noise. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that's really important from a leadership standpoint or being a gooder or in the world is enjoying the journey, enjoying waking up day after day and getting the arena and doing something and trying big. And this quote captures that because the goal isn't to win every day. That would be wonderful. The goal is to try every day. Yeah, exactly. And that's when you're going to fall down, get your hands dirty, all that stuff. So a couple of key concepts from this chapter are setting boundaries and the idea of the marble jar. We kind of covered this briefly a couple episodes back, but want to talk through some of those concepts and what really stands out to you there. For sure. You know, our ability in life to set boundaries is really, really important. It's amazing how often, and President Cum included, you let somebody kind of walk on that boundary. And it, we'll, we'll talk about small ones that you can tangibly actually think about. A boundary of a meeting. We are agreeing that this meeting is from one to two. Mm -hmm. And when people start taking that over, it's actually not okay. You think it's okay because you're wrapped up in it and you think that's important, but we set a boundary. We made that agreement. That's the time. And so that's a really small, but it's a tactical math example that people can understand. And imagine that, you know, the broader scope of a company, we're really big on defining everybody's roles, who owns what, what do they do? And that is the boundary you're setting of the work you are responsible for at Gooder. And so it's really, really important to identify boundaries at your company, who owns what, who does what, and then empower people to crush that. Mm-hmm. And then when they don't, show up and ask them why not. Yeah, or say, this is okay, this is not okay, and you can refer to it just like that, or even in an emotional way. You know, it's okay to express anger, but it's not okay to yell and call me names, you know, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. A really interesting thing with boundaries is it's a big word and, and full transparency, right? And we've had trouble of people using boundaries as a word to get out of things. You know, example would be, you know, I'm an introvert, and so... I don't want to have to interact with customers at an event. That's a boundary I'm setting. Mm-hmm. And it's like, whoa, whoa, time out. That's not a boundary. Right. <laughs> uh, your role is you do this and you can't just throw that's a boundary on things to walk away from it. And so there is a cautionary tale and, and, and it's fine because all of this there is, but it's, it's a real thing. And, and I think it speaks to how difficult and nuanced the word boundary is. Absolutely. And one of the other things, the concept of the marble jar is something that has just come up for us as we navigated COVID, right? The idea that you can't just say, trust me and summon trust. It's something that's built over time. But that concept has been really cool for both of us. You want to talk about how it's played into your life? Yeah, for sure. And and quickly, if, if nobody understands the marble jar concept, it's everybody in your life has a giant jar. And when you meet somebody, as they do little things and trust is created, you put a handful of marbles in and a handful of marbles in, and then they fuck you over and you take a handful out. 
And so people who've been in your life for a long time that you trust, you know, Sean in my life, his marble jar is overflowing, right? It, it, it's at the top. And because that, but that has been cultivated over out of five, six, seven years. And so when you meet anybody for the first time, you don't fill the marble jar. You don't put it at a deficit. You place it there and you encourage marbles to be put in it and you try to put them in there yourself. Right. And so just, I want to ground people in it if they haven't listened to a previous episode. So remind me what you want me to talk about, the question. (laughs) Uh, Just how that whole concept has helped you understand building trust and relationships and at Gooder. Yeah, really real example is in February, we had a really large class. How many people do we onboard, Sean? It was like 13. 13. And some really amazing people that do great work, but they all show up with a marble jar and marbles have to get placed in there. And as projects are being handed off, hey, I'm going to give opportunities for 10 marbles to be put in and not put 100 marbles in to start. It's a really important idea because the longer you're with somebody, the better they do, they trust you. And so that's something that actually I was just talking to our colleague Nicole about with on a couple projects of related to that just in theory. And so a real life example is people who, if you have friends in your life who always flake, you know who you are if you're a flaker uh, and, and you know who your friends are. And if you need them to be there on time, they're bankrupt. You have to understand that. And if right. if your friend is always 20 minutes late to a run and it happens 10 times and you get mad on the 11th, that's on you. Like that's on you. They told you everything they need, need you to know about them. Right. Every single time they showed up on time would be one hypothetical marble going in the jar. <laughs> yeah. And every time they're late, it's like this jar has been empty for a while. Like I can't believe this is not sustainable. Yeah. But it's, it's just a really amazing analogy to to think about. For sure. And going through book clubs, it helped me realize that even the way that you imagine whatever your marble jar is like, to me, it would be a pretty large transparent jar, but to others, it's a small opaque one or whatever. Like we all think of it differently, right? That's fascinating. Yeah. Do you now ask a question like, what's your marble jar look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's become that kind of a thing. And also my default over life basically was everybody gets a full jar of marbles upon meeting them. Like they don't have to earn most of the marbles. I'm like, oh, well, that's not serving me well. I should probably be like, here you go. Here's a nice empty jar. Why don't you start building trust with me over time instead of having like all these opportunities to fuck up before I go, oh yeah, reality and uh, what I'm hoping for are not matching up here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The the amount of insights in my own life that have creeped up during reading this book a couple times, like, oh, yep, I do that. All right, Right. let me try try and change that. (laughs) Yeah, totally. All right, so moving on to chapter three here, this is called The Call to Courage. A ton of stuff in here that we've used that have been super helpful, but a couple of the key concepts, clear is kind, Unclear is unkind. I think I've seen this in so many decks to the point where I like I forgot that it's even a part of Dare to Lead until checking notes because it feels like it's a, a part of Gooder. How has this played into our culture for you? Yeah, I mean, clear is kind is one of those things that we say all the time. And I'll fall off this, but this idea of if Sean presents a project and it's really, really bad, it's not good. Me saying like, hey, that, oh, that, that's good. That, that, that's great. That is really unkind because I let him think that his work was good. And I did that so I didn't have to have a 10 second awkward conversation. Right. And so that's this idea of clear is kind. This is the hardest practice probably. I don't know. You would love your opinion. It feels like the hardest practice that there is here of letting people know. And it goes back to trust and marble, marble door building, but letting people know when they crush it and when they fall down. And it's a practice that we'll probably always have to work on at the brand. Oh, absolutely. 
And to me, it connects with the idea that expectations are resentments waiting to happen, right? If we have an expectation of someone else that we don't share with them, we're likely to hold them accountable to that anyway and start to build up resentment or, you know, some kind of tension between us rather than being willing to go, oh, I should be clear about this. I actually expect everyone to arrive at meetings exactly on time or whatever. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's written in there like feeding people half truths or bullshit to make them feel better, uh-huh. which is almost about making ourselves feel better. And that's and that's what it is. But your point of it's in our culture, like you are on meetings at time, mm-hmm. like you show up to meetings on time and they end on time. It's it's a really important thing. That's one that we've been really clear about. And and again, I think when things are tied to like numbers, you can actually define this is success, this is not success. Right. The hard part is when, because so much of knowledge work is opinion-based. And so the exercise is letting people know why this was not okay and how to make it okay. That's when you kind of go from like, you know, a white belt to a black belt in this. <laughs> at least a purple belt or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 at least a purple belt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Constant practice. So I think that leads into being able to take building trust over time, permission slips, container building, clear as kind. We get into this thing she calls the armory, which is the way that we can show up as leaders is either armored and we're leading with fear and hurt or unarmored and we're leading with vulnerability and courage. And so there's a ton of stuff in there. But one of the concepts that has come up over and over is this idea of painting it done. And I know this applies from everything from feedback to projects, but how have you used paint it done in your life at Gooder? Yeah, I almost jumped the gun up when we were talking in the section before about Clear's Kind and talked about paint it done. Yeah. Because one thing that I realize is I move a thousand miles a minute and one of my weaknesses is not clearly defining expectations. Mm-hmm. And, and so that leads to And it's my fault. Nobody else is of, oh, this isn't what I expected. Well, how the fuck would you know? Because I clearly didn't tell you. (laughs) And so (laughs) and so paint it done is this concept of what does done look like? So, I mean, we can like do a a real live version of it. uh, Hey, Sean, want to launch a culture podcast together? Does that sound good to you? Yeah, sounds great. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. All right, cool. So uh, if you could start on that project, that'd be great. Cool. Um, Actually, I could really use your help just painting this done for me because I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) All right. So want to do a podcast about our culture and we do all these amazing things. How can we share this with the world? It feels like we have an opportunity to pick topics and have a conversation about it. We should launch our own Instagram channel. There's Shelby on the team, crushes a blog. Let's see if we can get her involved. Let's get Barb's involved from social and really treat this as a major initiative and build this project out like from soup to nuts, trying to launch two seasons in the first year, that is a much better explanation. And you probably should say paint it done more because that was right. there's still a thousand details left. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, that's a lot of broad strokes, but that's a huge project, right? So with a smaller task or something, one of the things I always use is context, objective, and timeline. So give people the background they need to know, what is it they're trying to do and how much time do they have to do it? Those are like the brushes I use to paint something done because otherwise the picture is missing something, right? For sure. And I can do a simpler one in, a, in personal life, right? If you want your partner to take you on a date, well, my partner never takes me on dates and I want to feel special. Like, hey, honey, take me on a date. And your partner takes you to a sports bar and has chicken fingers. It's like, <laughs> okay, miss situation. So then you say, hey, next time, here's what I want. I want to go somewhere where there's fancy cocktails. I want us to dress up. I want this to be a night. I want us to Uber so we can make sure... We have 
drinks. I don't want TVs to be involved. And that's an opportunity for you to paint that done for someone. And just saying I want X to happen without giving what you actually really want is bullshit. 100%. And that leads to one of the new rules from this chapter that's become a big part of Gooder. You're not allowed to criticize without offering a point of view in return. You can't tear something down without building it back up. Yeah, it's really hard in practice when I'll do too. I'm like, oh, I don't like that. Damn, why don't I like it? Why don't I like it? Why don't I like it? Because it's hard. It's, it's, if anybody's ever worked with a designer and you're like, all right, I want a logo done. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, I don't like it. Well, that's, that's bullshit. Like, right. hey, I want a fast moving logo. This seems a little old school. I want it to be two colors only. I was thinking black and teal, but if there's something else in there, be great. Actually talking about why you don't like something and how to improve it is paramount. Yeah. And it's also kind because it's clear. It's also very kind. (laughs) All right. So let's move through to the next chapter, shame and empathy. There's a ton about empathy in here. And I think one of the big differences for me was understanding that shame and guilt are different things. Like shame is the feeling of I am bad versus guilt is the feeling I did something bad. And this is where we just start to get into that whole pulling apart some of the what would be called soft skills, the emotional side of things that ends up being the hardest part about all of this. So this book is actually about the very hard skills of navigating the emotional landscape of things. What were some of the takeaways from this chapter for you? Well, first off, if you think that being a leader, being a mentor, giving feedback is a soft skill, you are sorely mistaken because it is one of the (laughs) hardest things to do. And this book really kind of approaches that and unpacks that where in the world we use this term soft skill for this stuff. And actually I do it too. And it's actually completely wrong. Mm -hmm. This is a really hard tactical skill. So I got to get that out there because I think it's really important for it. So a couple of things like one is what the ego doesn't understand is that stunting our emotional growth and shutting down our vulnerability doesn't protect us from the shame. Disconnection and isolation guarantees them. Mm -hmm. So not talking about the shame doesn't protect you. It gives it, it feeds it, it lets it grow. And that is really, really important. Renee Brown's kind of known for her shame research and vulnerability. And so our ability to let people label shame is really, really, really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A couple of things that stood out to me were the ideas that We can respect other people's truth as a full truth, like their version of reality is not some off version of mine. It's it's theirs and it's completely okay just as it is. And moving from whatever feelings of shame we have to empathy is about having the courage to reflect back to someone the truth of how they're feeling. So being able to take their perspective as well and look at things together rather than saying like, oh, poor you or, you know, I feel sorry for you or something like that. It's more like, oh, I understand that feeling. I've had that myself. Yeah, because you you don't need to relate to the exact situation, but you can relate to the feeling. Mm -hmm. That's really real. And and that's a really powerful thing when you're trying to give empathy is to not relate to the exact situation, relate to the feeling that person has. Yeah, exactly. So the model that she gives for empathy or feeling with people, not for them, is to take the perspective of another person, meaning that you become the listener and the student, not the knower of their experience. You try to stay out of judgment, understand their emotions and communicate your understanding of those emotions and then practice mindfulness so you don't get sucked in and like over-identified with their situation. You're just able to stay present with it. And man, that is a super difficult practice, but it's something that's very much worth pursuing. Yeah, and and what's talked about in this book too is people who can set the strongest boundaries and not take on people's emotions as their own are the people who have the capacity to give the most empathy. Right. And 
that's an incredible thing to think about in it because you're able to be present, like you said, and not take on what they're doing, but instead show up for what they're feeling. Absolutely. And like you said, it it does require mostly your work on yourself first, right? You have to be clear about what your boundaries are, your expectations and all those things in order to even get into that kind of a position. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So one of the key tools that allows us to get into a, a spot where we can have a tough conversation is the idea of this shitty first draft where we're kind of sh- sharing, oh, you know, it's like a, I think of it as assumptions battleship. I'm going to say the story I'm making up about this or the story I'm telling myself, blah, blah, blah. So that's something that we use a lot. What are some of the ways that it's come up for you recently? Yeah. When you're thinking about giving feedback, for example, I'll use a story I'm telling myself all the time of the story I'm telling myself is this project doesn't excite you. So you did a really shitty job. Is that true? Mm-hmm, right. We tell ourselves stories all the time. Also, when people start going down the path of venting or this person's doing that, I get it all the time. It's like, well, that's a story you're telling yourself. Yeah. You should ask that person. And that's a really important thing. And then in the context of shitty first drafts, talks a lot about empathy misses. And all the time, somebody can come to you with a problem and you fuck that up. And that's also okay to be like, hey, you came to me with this. I fucked it up. I want to redo. And, and that's okay. So there's shitty first drafts of having a clunky conversation, shitty first drafts of reacting. You know, our life is basically a series of shitty first drafts until we can make them better. <laughs> <laughs> right. And just that, having that concept of whatever story I'm telling myself, that is a story that I'm making up all on my own. It doesn't have to be completely true. But by default, it feels like our assumption is this is reality and no one can oppose it because it's the experience I'm having. It's just totally out of our awareness before something like this. I agree completely, Sean. Yeah. So one thing that I've noticed is that because everyone goes through the book club at Gooder, there's a group of people that have been through it and then there's others that haven't. And if you haven't been through it and you don't understand, like when someone says the story I'm telling myself is whatever, it's likely to sound pretty harsh, right? (laughs) Like you're kind of sharing like the, the raw worst version of whatever your take on reality is. And it can land pretty hard with people that are like, oh, uh, what? Ah, how, do I, how do I deal with this? Have you experienced something like that? I haven't. It makes sense. So you know, we, we're going really fast. We're hiring all the time. And usually what about between three and nine months in is when you do the early book club. And so yep. there's this overlap. I haven't, but I probably going to keep an eye out for it now because I'm sure, I'm sure I've experienced it. I just haven't noticed it. Right. Yeah. I, in fact, it's one of the things that I throw into our onboarding week. Just be like, yeah, just in case you hear a phrase like this, <laughs> uh, you know, that person isn't trying to lay waste to your self-esteem. <laughs> They're actually trying to help you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in the gifts of imperfection, Bernadette Brown talks about like people who are like wholehearted, like really joyful living people. And the research shows that they almost always, when thinking about things, use the words, the story I'm telling myself or a version of that instead of accusatory or confusing feelings for facts. Right. To get somewhere different than if you just worked from your assumptions directly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next chapter is all about living into our values. And we basically covered this one in expanded form in our previous episode. So I'll just open it up here if there's anything you want to throw in that maybe we didn't cover or something from your notes that feels really important. I would say the only thing is you know, when we do this as the book club, when we first start doing it, we 
use this and we created the values for the, the brand. And, and then now when everybody goes through it, they create their own personal values. And, and so we all have our own personal values. Mine's authenticity and showing up. Sean, what's yours? Harmony and practice. And this is a next phase of how we use this in our company because we don't do really anything with people's personal values right now. But on the horizon is to be out there and share like, all right, my values, we're going to do a whole thing of my values are authenticity and showing up for these reasons. Here's supporting behaviors and here's slippery behaviors, just like we did at the company so that we all can understand each other better. We think, oh, this is why that bothers that person. If showing up is really important to a person and you say you're going to be there and you're not understanding why they're so annoyed with you. Mm -hmm. You're like, Oh, got it. Yep. That's a trigger. And so I'm excited for like this next evolution for us. Absolutely. She even says in the book that you don't know someone until you understand their values and that it just makes perfect sense with what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Their assumptions are coming from whatever they value. For sure. Yeah. All right. So the next section is on braving trust. One of the first things that stands out to me is most people consider themselves trustworthy, but only trust a few people. (laughs) It's one of those hilarious like divergences of statistics to experience. What are some of the key takeaways from this section for you? Well, one, companies with a high level of trust outperform the S&P 500 by a factor of three. Mm -hmm. That's insane. So for people who think this is like soft, fuzzy skills, like how does this like affect the bottom line? There you go. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> just drop that and let it go. She talks a lot about asking for help as a trust building exercise. Asking for help is the quickest way to gain trust. Asking for help is a marble earning behavior. Asking for help is a power move. I really love that. And I agree, right? It's amazing. If anybody asks anybody else for help in the world, most people are really excited to help you. And just that as a thing, especially as a CEO of a company, going to people and be like, hey, I need help with this it instantly puts trust. And I just, I have a reminder that shows up once a month in my to-do list about this because asking for help is a trust building uh, exercise and it's it's really powerful. Absolutely. One of the things that you always talk about is deprogramming and reprogramming. When people come from whatever company they were previously working at to Gooder, there's some things that you have to shift about your mindset. And the assumption that you should always know the answer to any question is just ridiculous, but I feel like it's built in. Like corporate culture does not accept asking for help or asking questions, it's like, you got to know. Yeah. Yeah. How do you encourage people to ask for help when they're basically trained not to, to kind of hide when they don't know something or try to work through it on their own? So in a a perfect world, you start immediately and you you let people fail small before big. And and, and when you have an established company, Mm -hmm. this gets harder and harder, right? Because I think starting small is, is really, really important. Allie, who's our head of sales, you know, she came to me a maybe six months ago when she kind of first took over this position and asked me, she goes, how do you trust people so much? <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, that's a, <laughs> uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. And, and, I, and I thought about it. It's probably something the effect of, do we have a choice in the world? Uh-huh. You have to put some trust in people and you put trust in them until they let you down too many times that so their jar is empty. And mm-hmm. our ability to do it in small increments is probably the the most important way to approach this because trust is not built with giant extravagant situations. Trust is built over a long amount of time with little small things. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. One of the ways that I notice that it plays out at Gooder is that when people, let's say they just started in their role and they're given a 
a project, it's painted done, they get a sense of how it should turn out, and then they disappear and work in a void or in a vacuum for like a month, rather than checking in and saying, hey, I've got a question about this, or who should I check in with to get approval for this? If I'm the person that handed them that project and they're just off working on their own, they might feel like I'm doing a great job. I'm autonomous. I'm not bothering Sean at all. But I'm thinking, do they know what they need to be doing next or what's (laughs) going on here? So it's like that gap between whatever our expectations we think is going to earn trust versus what actually does. Yeah. And that gap is murky a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) It is. One of my favorite things with this section is we can never overestimate the relationship between self-trust and trusting others. Maya Angelou said, I don't trust people who don't love themselves and tell me I love you. There's an African saying, which is, be careful when a naked person offers you a shirt. And this kind of goes back to being in the arena, but there's a leading by example element of trust and it has to be a two-way street. Yeah, Absolutely. And that includes even the way that we handle gossip, right? Talk to people, not about them. We have to build these rules in so that we can learn to trust each other and not be on the defensive all the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So final section here, learning to rise. This is all about the idea of all all the things we've talked about, being vulnerable, being willing to paint it done, set clear boundaries. All of this is about learning to fall and fail so that you can get back up. It's actually the learning to get back up part. There's all kinds of stuff tied up in that, but what are the key concepts here that kind of put a bow on all all of these together for you? We have to teach people how to land before they jump. Right. (laughs) There it is. And that's got to start on day one, right? Yeah. yeah. That's why we have a super in-depth three-month onboarding process. We take people through this book club and others. And if we're not teaching people how to land, how can we ask them to jump and then take a bigger jump and then to jump across the Grand Canyon? Yeah, exactly. So I know in week one, at some point you get a couple of hours with all the new hires. What do you cover that relates to this to help them get a sense of what they're in for at Gitter? What I cover in the context of Dare to Lead? Uh, just Or just leadership? Just in the first, you know, the first talk that they hear from you, how are you teeing them up to be in this world with us? I cover bits of everything we'll cover in the second season, but I'm a very linear thinker. And so kind of talk about, I'll talk about the journey, but in there, I feel I have a really, there's an onus on me to talk about every single, the mistakes and the missteps that that we've had. And that right there, I believe is a really amazing way to start building trust of not getting up in front of the company and acting like everything's perfect. This is the best company work of being actually very clear about it. And and there's some clear as kind in there of like, this is expectations. This is what we need from you. And so it's something that's spent a lot of time on. I redo it every time I do it. But the ability to let people know this is how we do it. And at the end of the day, we're a sunglass brand. Like it is going to be fine. It's going to be fine. We, <laughs> we make sunglasses. We make bright colored sunglasses that are called Flamingos on a Bruise Cruise and Whiskey Shots for Satan. And so yeah. we expect a lot out of people, but don't stress. Like we're not doctors. Right. (laughs) It's a nice safety net to be reminded of for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So also calm is a superpower. So that is a really important idea that had somebody wonderfully set up a meeting this week. This meeting said person's name, fuck up. And she comes in and like every meeting invite has to have a purpose. And it's like the purpose of this meeting is to explain to you how I fucked up so that it won't happen again. 
And so one, I see this, I laugh. I don't know what the fuck it is, but I know what this is about. And she comes in and really taking this really, really serious. And what I told her is, hey, the fuck up wasn't good. Not that big of a deal. The fuck up tells me one thing, but the fact that you showed up here owning it, already had the fix in place, explained how it'll never happen again. You told me one thing when you said the fuck up, your response and your reaction told me everything else about you as a person. Yeah, that perfectly encapsulates essentially everything that this book has taught us, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I want to say just one more thing about the way that you're setting up a safe space for failure. Kind of behind the scenes, I know we're working on like top fuck ups. Yeah. Like even like a leaderboard essentially to say, okay, we are going to fail. We're going to fall. Like you said, being aware of it and owning it is way more valuable and way more important than trying to cover your ass or cover it up. So I just think that's an awesome example of supportive behavior of this whole thing. What is your thinking behind setting up a, a failure leaderboard? Yeah. I mean, I think the the reality is we talk about it's okay to fail and celebrate failure. And so, all right, if we're talking about that, then let's do it. Let's celebrate it. Like give people a chance to like, say their fuck ups, own it, how they fixed it. And then there's going to be prizes and celebrations for people who have the biggest fuck ups every month. <laughs> right. Yeah. Ah, that's classic. All right, cool. So I think we've done a pretty decent job of touring this book. Everybody else can read it if they want to. For sure. Let's just go through the lightning round here if you're ready. Let's do it. All right. So how many times have you read Dare to Lead? Four. All right. That seems like a lot. <laughs> What's your favorite quote from the book? Well, my favorite quote from the book is the Theodore Roosevelt quote, but I'll give a quote that's actually... Uh, Brene Brown's, if you are not in the arena getting your ass kicked on occasion, I'm not interested in or open to your feedback. Yeah, awesome. All right, what was the most challenging concept for you to accept? Oh, clear as kind. And yeah. <laughs> we just fuck it up all the time because you realize how selfish you are. <laughs> Good to practice. Though. Or self as I am. Right? <laughs> uh, what's one thing from the book that we don't use yet that you would like us to? The personal values I talked about, sharing those, yeah. Yeah. We got the company version, flock version. Now we got to get down to the personal level. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about that. All right. What's something cool you forgot about, but remembered when you were preparing for this episode? Oh, the idea of courage is contagious and, and really just that leading by example and like people can recognize it. It's really important. Yeah. Courage is contagious. That's actually my favorite yeah. idea from the whole book for sure. All right. So if you ever get to meet Brene, what would you ask her? <laughs> I'm an atheist. So I'd be like, help me better understand faith as mm -hmm. a concept, mm -hmm. because it, I think it's one thing that I struggle with. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's hope you get a chance to have that conversation. Oh, me too. <laughs> cool. Circle bar time. What's one thing you want to answer again or didn't get to bring up? I'm sure there's a hundred things in here. I think the one thing is read this the first time we did it haphazardly a book club with the leadership team on brenebrown.com she has a methodical book club exercises for each chapter discussion topics and so if you're going to do this and you want to do it with people on a team use her book club don't try and rethink it it is amazing and so in depth it's everything is there yeah absolutely all right so any advice or next actions to help someone follow a similar path if you want leaders you need to cultivate leaders and being a leader is a practice continuously. Right. All right. And uh, I mean, next actions are read, dare to lead and do the book club. <laughs> yeah. Get the workbook, discover your values, start practicing. Fuck it up. Do it again. Right. Exactly. Cool. 
All right. Thanks, Stephen. And thanks everybody for listening. Be sure to join us next time. We're going to be covering the ways we give and receive feedback. Until then, be excellent to each other. Thank you so much for listening. Send us your questions, learn more, and find episode resources at gooder.com slash culture. If you enjoyed yourself today, we would be so grateful if you could please leave us your star rating and review. That minute and a half of your time, it really does help people find us. And don't forget to share us on your stories, tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your dog, or maybe your dog isn't into this kind of thing, and that's fine too. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Culture Gooder and Steven at Steven Lease. That's Steven with a PH because those V people are not trustworthy. Culture Gooder is produced by our in-house Gooder team. The show is co-hosted and written by Sean Tinney and Steven Lease. Maya Morales does PR and promotion. Shelby Farrell handles all things digital. Emily Barber manages social. Teresa Garcia is our supervising editor. And the editor of this episode can be found on the blog. That sweet tune you're hearing right now was created by Mike Eddy of Cucumber Fuzz, recording by Barrett Bowman, and this voice you're listening to is Carrie Blunt. Many thanks to the entire team at Gooder, really, without whom there obviously would be nothing to podcast about. At Gooder, we exist to give you the permission to be unabashedly yourself, unless you're an asshole. So don't be. Until next time.